Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, but first, we start with the PNE mini riot on Sunday night. It all started after American rapper Little Baby canceled his show at the last minute. His fans decided to act like little babies. They trashed the place. Here's a listen to some of the witnesses to the mayhem. So they said it was canceled, and everyone started leaving, but some people stayed back, obviously, and they started rioting and breaking all the tents and everything. As soon as the announcement was made, everybody was trying to run out as fast as they could. Crowds almost toppled everybody over. So, like, we were just, we were leaving as soon as we could, but, like, we almost fell and got crushed. I saw people stealing credit card machines. Like, when you tap your phone to pay, people were stealing credit card machines. People were stealing merch. People were stealing drinks. Everything. It was free game for them. Investigation now. Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Very pleased to welcome him back. Steve, thanks for coming on today. No problem. Good morning, Mike. Okay, Steve, tell me about the investigation here. Yeah, so this is a very serious investigation. Uh, obviously, a lot of damage, a lot of property damage, a lot of violent behavior was displayed, a lot of really unacceptable and inappropriate behavior uh, following the cancellation of this concert. So we've been through this before with other incidents like this, whether it be the Stanley Cup, 94, 2011, the GNR riot, the riot at the Hyatt. Um, so we've got a lot of experience in, in dealing with investigations like this. So right now we're in the process of putting together a team. We're forming a team of investigators from various parts of the department, pulling on people who have um, lots of experience in, in these types of investigations, whether it be major crime or youth services or uh, folks like myself uh, from the media side. Um, we will be conducting an investigation. Part of that investigation will involve asking uh, people who were there, people who witnessed it, people who recorded um, on their on their cell phones a video of the um, the behavior to come forward to provide that video to us so that we can identify the people the most violent people and the most destructive people who are who participated in this so uh, we fully expect that um, uh, as soon as later today uh, we'll be going live with a portal on our website for people to upload video uh, launching a dedicated tip line for people to uh, contact us if they have information and we'll move this investigation forward but it'll be a long one it'll likely take weeks if not months to complete Wow, how crucial will that video evidence be? I imagine it's going to be key here if we think back to the Stanley Cup riot 11 years ago. Man, that video was crucial to those cases. It was, and think about how much more um, people rely on their phones to record things. I mean, anytime um, something's happening out in public, it's a natural instinct for people now to take out their phones and to record it. We've seen it on social media. We've been mining that video off of social media since this happened. And we know there are more people out there who, whether they participated in it or they were a bystander or a witness, we know there will be people out there who have who a video that will help us with our investigation. That video will be key to help us identify people. The video itself will not solve the cases. We'll still, we'll still need help from the public to identify the people in the video and to confirm their identities. But... When we when we complete our investigations, if we obtain evidence against a person who committed a violent act or participated in destructive behavior, we'll certainly pursue uh, criminal charges when we have uh, the opportunity to. 
What's your message, Steve, to people who may have been down there and may have videos on their phone and they're wondering whether they should upload these videos to the VPD website now? Because will they be expected to testify potentially in court? Yeah, well, we're, first of all, we're asking people if they've got video to um, to do the right thing, to save that video, um, yeah. and, we, and we will be asking them to uh, bring it forward, to submit it to us for uh, for evidence. Uh, part of this, uh, if somebody chooses to come forward uh, and submit this video, um, we would ask that they participate in the investigation to uh, to share the information, to not be anonymous. We're, we're certainly asking for people to uh, tell us what they know. However, there's always the opportunity for people to provide information anonymously, whether it's to us or through Crime Stoppers. At the end of the day, we know there's people out there that have information that can help us solve these crimes. We'll be looking to the public for help to do that. Uh, the public expects uh, uh, us to conduct a, a thorough and fulsome investigation here, and that's exactly yeah. what we're going to do. Speaking of Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department, the mini-riot that went down Sunday night at the PNE after the little baby concert. How much damage was done down there? There was a lot of damage. Um, so I should, there, were, there were thousands of people inside the venue when the concert was cancelled at the last minute. The vast majority of them did leave without incident. There was a small group of people, um, a couple of hundred people who stayed behind who did a lot of damage both inside the venue, flipping tables, destroying kiosks stealing things, um, but also going outside, uh, causing a lot of property damage on the in Hastings Park fairgrounds. We had fights breaking out across the street at a gas station, um, and just a lot of chaos that spilled over into the surrounding neighborhoods. Had to have officers come in from other parts of the city to restore order. Had to ask for help from our, metro, our friends at Metro Vancouver Transit Police to come in and assist. Unfortunately, we were wow. able to restore order. But yeah, there's a lot of damage, definitely in the, in the tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. Any police officers assaulted down there on Sunday? So we had, we did have um, people throwing objects, uh, bottles, uh, cans of beer, other objects at police officers as they were responding. Fortunately, no serious injuries to the police, and as of yet, no reported injuries from members of the public or people who were participating yeah. in this. Uh, at least people, not that have come forward at this point. Okay, let me uh, play a clip here for you from Laura Balance, spokesperson for the PNE, and she was asked about the security down there, or maybe there should have been more security for this event. Here's what she had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. To try and guess that a thousand people or, or people will react so badly when there is so much past experience that is not indicative of that we would need to staff to that level I don't think it's fair and quite honestly would make it cost prohibitive for promoters to bring events to our city. Okay, I was taking a look, Steve, at one of the videos of a guy in a security uniform. <laughs> He's trying to break up a fight between like 20 people. I thought, mm -hmm. okay, okay, man, I tip my hat to you for, for trying, <laughs> but they, just, they seem vastly outnumbered. Yeah, and we work very closely with venue operators, whether it's the folks at the P&E, BC Place, uh, other venues, when uh, concerts, events are happening uh, to assess security risks and staffing levels. Uh, we often provide, as we did in this case, uh, police officers to assist uh, inside the venue. And we largely assist with private hired security at the venues right. as well. An incident like this... Um, somewhat predictable when you have a, a thousands of people inside a venue who have paid their hard-earned money to see a show and then that, that show gets cancelled 
at the last minute without any notice when people have been uh, waiting for a long time. We've seen incidents like this, whether it's Guns N' Roses in Vancouver or incidents that have happened in other cities. That's not that's not on the PE. That's on uh, something that uh, is, is more on the the act that cancelled yeah. at the last minute uh, the concert promoters. And we'll be having conversations with everybody, including the folks at the PE, uh, to to make sure uh, that there are uh, steps that are put in place to. Uh, prevents things like this from happening in the future. Hey, last question for you. Does it surprise you at all to see this kind of behavior? I mean, you've seen lots of mayhem over the years, but, you know, I was looking at some of these videos of guys just trashing the, the place down there. I think, don't you realize that you're surrounded by cameras right now? Like, everyone is filming you. They don't seem to learn their lesson. You know, like, it's a group mentality. Whether it's happened, it's, it's Guns N' Roses or the Stanley Cup or... Uh, the riot at the Hyatt, stuff that's happened in other cities. Uh, it's the group mentality when you get a group of people together. It's the anonymity that people feel in large groups where they think they can get away with it. Um, in this case, we, like I said before, there's so much video and so much evidence out there. Uh, we're confident that we'll be able to collect evidence to hold the people. The people who are, who are committing the most violent acts, the most destructive acts, will be able to identify them and hold them accountable. Right. What, could, what sort of charges could people potentially face here? These are mischief investigations, uh, by and large, yeah. people who are de- destroying property. Uh, but if anybody engaged in violence, if anybody committed an assault, uh, we'll yeah. certainly be investigating it as well. Our priorities will be targeting people who were the most violent and the people who uh, were the most destructive. If anybody's a victim of an offense, if anybody was injured in this and they haven't yet come forward, we invite them to come forward to us uh, to provide their information so that they can participate in the investigation. This will take a while. This will take weeks, if not months, to yeah. complete, but we're committed to, to doing the job. Thanks for coming on. You bet, Mike. Take care. All right. Here we go now with our housing debate. And this is a red-hot issue in the municipal election campaign right now. Is it time to build more apartments, more condos, and build them everywhere, including in neighborhoods currently zoned for single-family homes only? That's like more than 80% of the city. That is the promise now from the one-city Vancouver slate of candidates. Their campaign platform has just been released. Let's discuss it now with our panel. We have both sides of it for you. Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle running for re-election with one-city Vancouver Councilor. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me back. You bet. Thanks for doing this. Bill Thielman also on the line. Bill is also running for Vancouver City Council with the slate of candidates team for a livable Vancouver. Hi, Bill. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thank you to both of you. Councillor Boyle, let me go to you first. So let's talk about your platform here and this idea. Allow apartments and condos to be built everywhere in the city. How would this work? Uh, So one city is proposing that we make it a lot faster and easier to build the types of homes that we know we need. More um, rental housing, as you said, um, more uh, family-sized strata housing, as well as um, really uh, tipping the scales and making it much easier to build co-op housing and non-market housing. And we're proposing that we build that housing uh, spread across every neighborhood in the city. Um, we know there are neighborhoods, as, as I spoke to last time I was on, that have seen um, decreasing numbers for decades. Uh, and, and it's not great for those neighbors. It's certainly not great for uh, small businesses in those areas. Um, it uh, isn't great for local schools. So we want to welcome more families back into neighborhoods across Vancouver and uh, and make it easier for them to stay in Vancouver. Okay, it's a bold idea. Bill Tillman, what do you think? 
Well, I just completely disagree with it because, uh, first of all, if people want to have rezoning, and we've seen many, many rezonings, and in fact, the city council record that Christine Boyle sits on, uh, 254 different rezoning applications the last four years, every single one of them was passed, every single one. So nothing gets rejected by this council. It's practically a rubber stamp, uh, which is wrong. And yet there's this idea that, oh, there's nobody can get stuff rezoned. Everything gets rezoned, Mike. Uh, the other thing, though, is if you want to propose to have a six-story apartment next to in a single-family dwelling area, then ask the people there. Like, what's the problem with democracy and asking citizens whether they want to do th- things, change the rezoning, increase the density in their neighborhood or not? What this proposal from one city would do is let the staff decide. It would take it away from city council, your right to go, have your views heard, whether in favor or against the proposals on rezoning something, and uh, let city councillors take accountability and responsibility as democratically elected representatives, not have the staff do it. That's what this proposal would do. Okay. Councillor Boyle. Yeah, look, I, I believe deeply in democracy. I'm running for a second time, and um, and one city has put forward a very clear plan for what we're proposing, and residents have a choice in this election to have a say. I think actually the much more disingenuous and, and undemocratic thing is the lack of other solid proposals on housing from Bill and team, as well as from Ken Sim and ABC, from, from other parties in the election. People aren't giving any clear and specific examples, uh, including Bill, of what they propose to do. This is the election. This is our time to be having a good debate about real solutions to the crises that we face. And instead, all Bill has to say is no. Bill. Well, there's lots of things that we can do. We could start by rescinding the Broadway plan, with which Ms. Boyle supported it, along with the majority of council, which would see demo evictions in uh, the largest single sector of low-rise affordable housing in the whole city, all along the Broadway corridor from Clark to Vine from 16th to 1st. And she voted in favor of that, despite the fact that many, many people came to city council, despite how hard it is to actually participate in a public hearing, like, isn't super simple. Uh, this, this council did not do any public hearings on the Broadway plan. They didn't hold any public meetings where well, people could get together and talk about it. Oh, and so, okay. so we've got to start by not having demo evictions that get rid of rental housing uh, and not put towers on every, on every block, which this proposal oh, would do. Okay, but going to the, the councillor's point there, like, you know, we know what you're against. You're, okay, you're against that Broadway plan. You're against this, diver- this density plan, that this one city plan that's been released. What are you actually for? Because we all, I think we can all agree here, we need more housing, right? So, Bill, where would you build this housing, man? Well, there's lots of ways that we can uh, increase the housing uh, through a more gentle density, through things like the Arbutus Walk area, where we can work with the community and put in more infill housing, more laneway housing, more carriage house housing, all sorts of different things that could be done. Uh, we should be looking at row housing. We should have, I agree with Christine Boyles, we should have more co-ops. We should have uh, more affordable housing. The big problem is there's 100,000 uh, housing units that have, uh, are in the pipeline, and this council has gone through, and they've basically implemented about 1% of those. City permit fees are too expensive. It all, overall, it adds up to almost a quarter of the cost of a house, and it takes years to get them approved. So there's lots of things we can do here, but the real problem is we're not building affordable housing, and when you just keep saying, well, it's just supply, supply, we've had four years of okay. this. We've had developers create more and more supply. It's expensive housing. It's not affordable. Okay, okay Councillor Boyle, what do you say to that? How, how can we be assured that if we build all these condos and apartments like you're proposing, that they'll be affordable? 
Yeah, look, I like Arbutus Walk as well. Um, that's the type of uh, that's the type of density. That's the type of neighborhood that we're proposing. Um, but that uh, project took a, a long time. We want to make it easier to build neighborhoods like that that are um, walkable. Uh, that's part of how you make it more affordable. If every individual project goes through a multi-year uh, a rezoning process, we're losing affordability. So we're proposing we have that conversation on a broader scale um, and then allow it to get built. And look, I've worked closely with um, co-ops throughout my four-year term. I've worked closely with the Co-op Federation and nonprofit housing providers, and they have been very clear that um, making it faster and easier, as, as I have been proposing, as One City has been proposing, reduces their costs and allows them to provide a deeper level of, afford- of affordability. Not only that, it also makes them more likely to um, secure senior government funding, which means they can uh, deepen affordability as well. So uh, okay. our plan is based on the advice of these experts. And again, Bill seems to be pulling magical ideas from the sky. Bill Tillman. <laughs> They're not magical ideas. The problem is uh, this city council, which is enthralled to big corporate developers, um, Kennedy Stewart is taking his money from, uh, obviously, as we've seen in stories this past two weeks, from some of the biggest developers in town. Uh, yeah. I would like to know why Christine Boyle is supporting Kennedy Stewart and big developers uh, who are giving tens of thousands of dollars to to the develop to um, to the one city or sorry to the uh, Forward Together plan, which one city is also um, also supporting. And uh, how is it that we depend on developers? who are doing this, who clearly are making a lot of unaffordable housing, a lot of expensive housing. How is that going to solve our problem? Councillor, what do you say to that? Sure. Look, um, one city hasn't endorsed a mayoral candidate, and we don't uh, take developer money. And in fact, that's Mm. been the case since one city was founded. Uh, We have had a policy to not accept funding from developers since before corporate Mm. uh, donations were banned, which is quite frankly, more than we can say for team mayoral candidate Colleen Hardwick, who in the last election ran with the NPA and seemed to have no problem then with the fact that the NPA's history is all about developer money. Councillor, let me ask you this. Does this issue get down to whether we have too much of the city currently zoned for detached single-family homes? Like, I was actually looking at a map of Vancouver yesterday showing the zoning across the city and it was like more than 80 percent of the city was single family detached homes is that the problem like more of the city should be opened up to higher density housing i think so i think the conversation we should be having is um where we want to build new housing and and what type of housing and that's exactly the conversation that one city is leading proposing that renters students families uh, should be allowed to live in every neighborhood of the city. And actually, all of us are better off um, if we have vibrant, healthy, mixed-income neighborhoods. Uh, and that's what we're proposing we get okay. to. Okay. Okay, Bill Tillman, quick response here, and then we'll fit a break in. Well, well, I'm so surprised you say you're not supporting Kennedy Stewart. He's the mayoralty candidate for the Vancouver District Labor Council. You're an endorsed councillor for that. Uh, I think you are supporting Kennedy Stewart in this one. Uh, I don't think you can distance yourself from the mayor. 
All right. All right. Welcome back as we continue to debate housing in the city. Christine Boyle, Bill Tillman are my guests. Is it time to break the city wide open here and allow apartments and condos to be built everywhere? That's the promise from the one city slate of candidates. Lots of calls on this. Richard in Vancouver. Hi. What do you think? Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Let's uh, first start off by saying that there is no single-family zoning left in Vancouver right now. Legally right now, thanks to the regressive left, uh, you can build a fourplex on a single-family lot in the city of Vancouver currently. Um, I think this is a crazy, insane idea because all it's going to do, and that's with the rezoning changes to fourplexes, duplexes, and laneway houses, all it's doing is creating speculation on land values and driving land values further up and creating mm. a city that is basically is just going crazy in terms of uplift on land values. I think there's tons of unused zoning potential in this city. I mean, we built, you know, the Jericho lands will be built. Uh, things are happening around... Um, uh, the Fraser lands. There's lots of stuff that's being built. We're just building. We have more capacity here with existing zoning that we can put people in that we don't have to be trashing okay. and destroying single family neighbor or what's left of single family neighborhoods. Councillor Boyle, what do you say to that? Um, so it's true that um, we don't have specific single family zoning anymore. You You can't build a fourplex. You can build a duplex with basement suites or a uh, uh, laneway home. But look, in from 2010 to 2019, the majority of new residential floor area in Vancouver um, was still detached homes, the least affordable form of housing, 57% of our new residential floor, floor area for that decade. Um, this council has shifted that with more rental and more social housing, but still the easiest form of housing to build in Vancouver is a big new single-family home. There's no public hearing required. You can ask Bill what he thinks about that. Um, And where there's tenants in these homes um, that are getting booted out for one big, newer, more expensive single-family home, there aren't tenant protections. And Colleen Hardwick voted against extending tenant protections to renters in these single-family zones. Okay. Okay, Bill Tillman. Well, uh, first of all, I, I'm surprised at the earlier statement because I just looked and, uh, uh, Councillor Boyle, you signed Kennedy Stewart's nomination papers for mayor this time, this time around, so I'm not sure how you're distancing yourself from him, but I can see why. Look, we've had four years of the same approach from this council. We've got, as a result, record high rents, record high housing prices, and an extremely low vacancy rate. So clearly what they're doing is not working, and what Councillor Boyle is proposing is even more of the same, including, you know, 20 to 40 story uh, high concrete towers all through the Broadway sector along the Broadway subway and and then up to six stories of its social or supportive housing all over the entire city. You know, I just don't know why this council majority is afraid of the voters, afraid of citizens having the right to say, because council's passing everything that they get to have a rezoning application where they pass them all. It's just giving citizens the right to at least say this doesn't work. We don't like this proposal. It's fundamental to democracy to me. Squeeze in another call here. Shin Shinda in Vancouver. Shinda, go ahead. Oh, hi. I am the one one of you know involved in the construction. Okay. The problem is, you know, that it takes forever. The delay. We need housing now. 
We don't need a seven year later. All the politicians you have, you know, they go, we're going to build like a hundred of these houses in next 10 years. I don't know what they're talking about. Again, the bill till man, you know, saying all these are approved, you know, the zoning. It takes, I applied for one. It takes years to do that. What a point. Do we need housing now? Okay, thank Not you. for like, like 10 years later. Thank you for the call. Is there too much red tape to get housing built, Councillor? Yeah, I, I, of course. I agree that we need to make it faster and easier. That's exactly what, we're, what one mm. city is proposing. And I agree with the urgency that this caller articulates. Look, Bill and I might agree. Um, I think Bill and I agree that what we're currently doing isn't working. What we're currently doing is tall and sprawl. We're leaving, as you so clearly uh, identified, Mike, we're leaving um, huge areas of the city to uh, only be replaced with new, larger, single-family homes that are pricing people out. And then we're forcing um, families, renters, uh, new Vancouverites, working people onto towers and arterials. One city is proposing a very different approach to housing. And like I said, you know, Bill Thielman is just saying no to everything. Okay, Bill, you got 30 seconds to reply here, and then we're out of time. Go ahead. Well, look, uh, in terms of Shinda's point, 25% of the cost, up to 25% of the cost of housing is due to city fees, permits, delays in getting stuff through, and we've promised to get that dramatically reduced, uh, cut the fees, cut the time involved so they can get built. But with 100,000 uh, housing units in the pipeline, this council's passed, uh, and there's been 1% of those built. So clearly the problem is this existing city council doesn't do right. what it says it wants to do. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the environmental battles underway in our province now, and especially the continuing blockades to oppose natural gas pipelines, old growth logging. Think about the Ferry Creek protests on Vancouver Island. More than 1,000 people arrested there in that dispute. How about the blockades of roads, bridges, and highways? These happen all the time, too. Maybe you've been stuck behind one of those. Hundreds of arrests of protesters there. Premier John Horgan calling these protesters out the other day. I'm going to play that clip here for you in a moment. Let's discuss it with our panel. Both sides of it for you. Ben Holt is an activist with the group Save Old Growth. Ben, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Also on the line, Bill Dumont. Bill is a retired forester in British Columbia. Bill, thank you for being here again. Thanks, Mike. I'm glad to be with you. Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. All right, first, let's have a listen to what the Premier had to say the other day about environmental protesters who block roads and bridges, and especially protesters who say they're doing it in the name of Indigenous rights, that they're siding with Indigenous people. Here's what John Horgan had to say the other day on this topic, and then I'll get your thoughts. Have a listen. Uh, To the critics, I say, get a life. To the critics, I say, listen to communities. Uh, When I hear people say that uh, they're speaking for Indigenous people, I say, have you ever met an Indigenous person? Have you been in a community that struggled with poverty for generations? And when they see an opportunity, some do-gooder comes in with a tilly hat and says, you're all bad people. Okay, Ben Holt. What did you think about that when you heard that from the Premier? Get a life. I think he's talking to you and your, your colleagues there. Go ahead. Well, first, let me say that, that we do not claim to speak on behalf of First Nations people. But um, to have the premier say something like that is 
it's a bit ridiculous because what we're asking him to do is keep the promises he said he was going to do. He promised in 2019, in October, that he was going to end old growth logging. He then promised in April of 2020 that um, he was going to enact all of the recommendations that came out of the strategic old growth review. Two years since, he has enacted exactly zero of those recommendations. I don't need to get a life. I need to get a leader. Okay, well, I think, though, he's correct when he points out that many of these groups and protesters will, they will cite Indigenous rights for what they're doing for these blockades, that they're standing with Indigenous people. I believe, I believe your group has done that, have they not? Well, so we, we do stand with Indigenous people, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, the, the Apache Dat have an agreement with Teal Jones, uh, a contract for $275,000. And that's their agreement, with, that's their partnership with Teal Jones. And that's a pity. That's a, it's such a small amount of money to, to essentially using the, their poverty against them. So here's this handout. Mm. Let us continue business as usual and cut down all your trees. Okay, Bill Dumont, what did you think about what the Premier had to say there? Well, he was right on. I, there's no, no doubt about it. He never, ever called for the cessation of old-growth logging in B.C., you know, there's 200 First Nations communities and businesses are involved in the B.C. forest sector, and they operate and manage uh, sustainable forestry operations. So the myth that somehow First Nations are not uh, involved or don't have a strong stake in the forest sector is, is simply nonsense. And, you know, the whole concept of old-growth preservation doesn't reflect or respect the thousands of years that First Nations have occupied these lands and forests. And they used old trees for transportation, fuel, housing, culture. And so the, the whole idea of old growth is not capture the reality of 10,000 years of occupation of these lands by First Nations. Ben Holt, what do you say to that? The, the scale is, is entirely different. Um, you know, First Nations' use of, of old-growth forests was on an entirely different scale than the industrial forestry that's going on now. Um, we're, we're in a situation that's very close to where the cod were in Newfoundland when the moratorium was brought in. What did that mean to those rural communities and to those people that depended on the cod? That's absolute nonsense to compare forestry in B.C., which is a sustainable renewable practices with the cod that's that's just silliness and it's sort of like the your approach of your organizations to do with carbon you know old growth forests continually release carbon they have low carbon sucking capacity and logging old and young forests doesn't contribute to the climate emergency you guys have hopped on that bandwagon and it's simply not backed up by any science and what do you say to that it's absolutely false. Save All Growth believes in science. The decisions we make are based on science. Old growth forests are the best carbon sinks we have. Hey, Ben, like when you make the comparison to the, the cod stocks on the east coast of Canada, what's your point there? Are you saying like old growth forests are on the brink of extinction in B.C.? Is that what you're trying to yes, say? Absolutely. We have only 2.7% of the productive old growth left in British Columbia. And the jobs that are dependent on those, you know, continued forestry, those jobs are all but gone. The only question that remains is whether there's going to be any ancient trees standing when the pink slips are handed okay, out. Okay, I've got to step in, Mike, because he's just spouting nonsense. 
more than half of all the old growth forests that were here at European contact several centuries ago are still standing. And 80% of that old growth will never be logged. It's in protected areas. And, you know, we're a global champion. No one else on earth has protected more old growth forests than British Columbia. So this 2% nonsense is just that. It's not factual. And we've protected, you know, over 20% of our land and water in BC is now in parks. Also a global record. No one else has done a good a job. Ben Holt. I think Bill must be counting the, the trees at the top of mountains, in swamps, and in rocky areas that no one's going to log. And that is not at all a similar value, both ecologically or, or monetarily for the logging industry as the trees that are in valley bottoms and lower elevations. Look, I've worked on the coast uh, and the interior in BC for years, and I recently took a trip from Prince George to Prince Rupert and down to Port Hardy. Virtually 90% of the landscapes I looked at were old-growth forests, untouched, haven't been logged, and the idea that there's no old growth left is simply nonsense, and it's misinformation that uh, the people at Ferry Creek okay. used effectively, but all you're doing is fooling the public. It's simply not true. Okay. We have. Okay, Ben, I know you want to respond to that, but let me just, in the interest of time, I want to fit in another clip here of the Premier and his comments the other day, because I think this is central to our discussion as well. So, Ben, I want, I want you to listen to what Horgan said here the other day, and you know, people are very familiar with the tactics of, of your group Save Old Growth when it comes to road blockades. A lot of people may have been stuck behind a blockade of a road or a bridge or a highway. And listen to what Horgan says here to people who want to change the rules, change logging in British Columbia. Here's how he says is a better way to go about it, then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Horgan. The government needs to do this. The government needs to do that. People need to stand up and support each other. And to the critics, I say, put your name on a ballot and see how much support you have. I guess he's saying, why don't you run for office if you want to achieve your ends? What do you say to him like when he says, put your name on a ballot and see how much support you get rather than, you know, blocking roads? Well, my name is not on the ballot, but Angela Appendary's name is. She's running yeah. for leader of the BC NDP. She's been extremely popular. She's signing up literally thousands of new members to the NDP. And the NDP old boys, they're, they're having a, a bit of a moment trying to figure out what to do about that and how to stop it. But, but she's exactly the person we need on this ballot, and I'm very glad that she's doing that. And her name's on the ballot. Mine isn't. Fair enough. But, well, have, uh, you, uh, have you signed up an NDP membership to vote for her? Yes, I have, actually. Um, oh. And, and I... I the first time I've been a BC NDP member, but I was excited to do that. And, you know, we have very little time to make meaningful changes uh, if we're going to confront the climate crisis. And we don't have the time, you know, for, for another election. It's too far into the future. We need to work with the, the politicians that we have now. And I'm, I'm thrilled that Anjali is, is running for the NDP. Bill Dumas, what do you think of what the, the premier had to say there? Put your name on a ballot and see, and see how that works out. Your thoughts? Well, I think part of the problem is we're trying to do forestry in BC on a popularity contest, and I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that approach. Uh, you know, there's 5,000 forest professionals in BC who are entrusted with managing BC's forests, and I think there's a good way and there's a, a wrong way to manage our forests. 
and I think our conservation-minded forestry that's been going on for more than a century reflects that we are doing the right thing. And this uh, movement by the climate uh, uh, doomsayers to try to tie logging into climate change is just simply nonsense. There's no science that, credible science that backs that up. And uh, it's unfortunate that so many people have been sucked in by the uh, potential to raise money from these causes. I mean, uh, Ferry Creek raised two million bucks. We still haven't wow. heard where all that money went and where it came from. It obviously came a lot of it from the, from the Americans because it was an American-led protest re- led by a now 19-year-old kid from Kirkland, Washington. Ben, hey, Ben, you want to respond to that real quick, and then we'll fit a break in here. Go ahead. So I wasn't involved in Ferry Creek. I can't speak to any specifics there, but Washington State does have a ban on old-growth logging. And, um, yep, we need one here. If, if forestry is sustainable, like Bill is suggesting, then why are we still logging ancient trees? Why are we not concentrating on second growth okay. forests instead? All right, welcome back. Phone lines are open here. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. As we continue talking about the environmental battles in our province, the road blockades that we've seen, both sides of it here for you. Ben Holt, Bill Dumont. Ed in Vancouver on the open line. Hi, Ed, go ahead. Yes, um, I am just getting very sick and tired of these people who are causing people to lose their jobs, cost them money, and doing illegal things. I'm sick and tired of these people. Why don't they get involved in the political scene and do it properly? Uh, You know, people with axes showing up, blocking roads, people that have to get to hospitals. I'm sick of these environmentalists. They hey ben, are just nothing but terrorists. Ben, Ben, what do you say to them? When the NDP was running in the last election, they promised that they would not build Site C, that they were not going to go ahead with LNG, and that they were going to stop old growth logging. They have not kept their promises. And, you know, I, I absolutely believe in the political process, and I am involved in the political process. Uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, and unfortunately, we have to, to resort to nonviolent civil disobedience in order to get the government's attention and in order to get them to act. Bill Dumont. The government never made the statement that this guy claims uh, they did, that they would stop all old-growth logging. Simply not true, just like a lot of the nonsense on the Save Old Growth website. They, they have a poll there where they tell people there's no old growth left. Please uh, indicate whether you support stopping logging. I mean, it's just a, another phony poll to fool the public that there is some crisis on, in, in B.C. There is no crisis. We're saving almost 80% of our existing old growth will never be touched. Very little that is logged is reforested. We plant 300 million trees a year. That's three trees for every tree we cut. You know, it's just simply baffle gab nonsense from these people trying to jump on the the carbon and the the climate bandwagon. There is no relationship between those things and logging. Ben, I'll give you a chance to respond here. Go ahead. I would welcome your audience to visit our website and to read up on, on what we have to say. What Bill is saying is, is just not correct at all. Okay, let's go back to the phone lines. Chris on the line in Penticton. Hi, Chris, go ahead. 
Hi, I've been really enjoying this uh, conversation you've been having with your two guests. I have to concur with the uh, person who's been in the industry. Uh, I've traveled this province thoroughly. We still have tons of old growth wars. But the really thing that bothers me is listening to this, like we should be protesting what's going on in the Amazon. That's where the real harm's happening. Uh, and hmm. is the Light Sea Dam, my heaven. They want to have electric vehicles. We can't have electric vehicles if we don't have a Site C. We might have to have a Site D. Ben Holt, what do you say to that? Okay, where Site C Dam is located in a place where it, to build it would involve flooding extremely valuable agricultural land. That it's just unbelievable that the province would want to do this. Um, it's of course it's it's not on solid ground, so they're they're running into all sorts of difficulties building it. Um, you know, I, I, it's unbelievable what the province is doing. They're, they're going back on all of these things that they promised, and, and they're very substantive things when we're facing a climate crisis. Bill, you want to weigh in? Go ahead. Well, the caller is absolutely correct. Some of the worst horror shows in forestry in the world are in other places, and, and we have huge concerns about what's happening in the Amazon. I worked in the tropical rainforest, so I'm well aware of the situation there, and there's absolutely no comparison to British Columbia. Okay, thank you. Let's squeeze in one more call. Uh, Catherine and Coquitlam. Catherine, you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hi, I'm a young person and I've lived here my whole life. And last summer, I think I was really worried by the hundreds of people who were killed in the heat dome and the flooding that happened. I had lots of friends who lost farmland. Um, and I'm just really worried about the future of our environment. And I find it really um, upsetting that the government hasn't been able to make a proper stance on that. So I just wanted to thank Ben um, for all the work that he's doing. I know that it's not easy work, but they're doing the work that needs to be done by the government. And so I'm just really thankful that there are people like Thank- him around. Thank you, Catherine, for the call. I'm, I'm, ben, I'm sure you're pleased with that call. Bill, I know you'd like to respond. We're out of time, but I want to thank you both for being here for a really good discussion. I would love to have you both back. Ben Holt there, Save Old Growth. Bill Dumont, Bill is a retired forester. All right, here we go now with tipping. Are you tipped out? Have we reached the tipping point on tipping? We talked about this on the show yesterday. Wow, what a reaction from the listeners to this topic yesterday for sure. I've got lots of calls here the last 24 hours. I talked to a guy yesterday who was asked to tip 25% on an oil change. You imagine that, like you can spend what for an oil change these days, maybe 70 bucks or so, maybe more. So you put a tip on top of that, now you're talking close to $90. Has it all gone too far? You may have heard about tip creep or tipflation. More businesses asking for tips that didn't ask for them before. More prompts to tip even higher amounts. Used to be like 15% was a standard tip. Now it's like you get prompted for 20%, 25%, even higher. Man, oh man, we got a ton of calls in this yesterday. Have a listen to some of the calls we received. It has gotten way out of hand. People just really don't have the money. It's awkward. For four of us to have dinner and drinks was $357. So now if I'm giving you a 20% tip, that's $70. To either reduce or stop tipping. That's the solution. Otherwise, it's just getting out of hand. 
we just came back from Europe, and there is no tipping at all. It was really, really nice. Creep in the tip. It's gonna, there's going to be a backwash. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Barry Choi. Barry is a personal finance expert. His website is moneywehave.com. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Barry, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. So this is a hot topic, I know, for sure <laughs> right now. Um, what do you think about it? Do you think that, let's t- talk first of all about this tipflation. Do you think that's going yeah. on, like more businesses are asking for tips and the tip, the suggested tips are going up? Uh, there's no doubt, you know, just listening to your callers, leaving those messages, it's very obvious. Anyone who's been out to a restaurant and apparently now auto mechanics are seeking yeah. uh, tip requests. Um, it's gone up. And I will say this, it's, it's a few different reasons. You know, inflation has gone up. So the restaurant industry is unfortunately trying to pass it off onto some consumers. To be fair, it's not every single restaurant. Uh, some restaurants pay, pay the employees a living wage. So, so tips are certainly not expected, but encouraged at the same time. Um, and, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I think a lot of people realized how important the service industry is. And the service industry is asking for a little bit more, which is pers- is reasonable. But again, just combined with inflation, it's, it's kind of like bad timing, if you want to put it that way. What do you think is a reasonable tip? Like as a financial, personal finance expert, like I remember in the old days, 15% was like standard across the board. Now it seems mm-hmm. like 15% is like a cheapo chump change <laughs> kind of tip. You're, you're kind of on the right track. I feel like back in the day, 10% was the bare minimum. Uh, and now it feels like 15% is a new 10%, if you know what I mean. So, you know, at a bare minimum now, 15%, and let's be clear, it should be before taxes, not after taxes. Some uh, service industry workers may disagree with me, uh, but that's the way I see it. And now if people are really happy with the service. Um, you, you should be looking at about 18 to 20%. And I know a lot of people will uh, disagree, and that's certainly fair. Uh, but again, inflation is one of those things. And, and like, let's be realistic, eating out has become more expensive. So, so as consumers, you got to decide what's important to you. And if you're going to budget for eating out, you should be budgeting those, those tip options too. Do you think that some business owners are behind this, especially the higher tip suggestions uh, <laughs> on the payment keypads? Like, you know, sometimes you'll see like, okay, 20 click here to tip 20 percent 25 percent i even saw 30 percent yeah <laughs> you know it's funny uh, the 30 percent i've seen quite a few times here in toronto uh i was in vancouver this past weekend and i didn't see 30 percent once i was like wow what a relief as we were just <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean um but yeah the restaurants are responsible they can sit the tip amount uh one restaurant in toronto on the receipt itself, and this was during uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, they printed out on the receipt, 18 to 22% is standard in Toronto. And I looked at this, I was like, get the F out of here. That's not true. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, so I do think some restaurants are, are taking advantage. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I do feel restaurants are maybe trying to pass this on to consumers, and that's not necessarily fair. You know, one of the clips we heard before I came on was about how in Europe, uh, tipping is not standard in Japan. It's not standard. Again, the cost of live or the cost of living is built into their wages, and maybe that's something we got to go to. But to change something that has existed here for a hundred years, like who knows, right? That's never going to happen. Yeah. Speaking of personal finance expert Barry Choi about tip inflation, do you think that should consumers feel guilty if they don't tip? Like, let's say you know we heard the story about the guy who got asked to tip 
for an oil change. Or I had an, another caller yesterday who said he, get, he gets a request to tip for a, a carpet cleaner comes to his home and there's a tip there's a tip request on the keypad. Should you, as a consumer advisor, like, would you say to people, you know, don't feel guilty if you don't want to tip? Like, what what would your advice be? I never feel guilty, and I encourage other people to not feel guilty either. There's obviously a sense of peer pressure, especially if you're with a group of friends and you're splitting the bill or you're the one paying the bill to be obligated. But, like, let's be realistic. If I'm going to a restaurant just to pick up my takeout food, I'm not going to tip. But if I'm sitting in, for sure, I'm getting a level of service. Not to say that there's not service required or built in uh, to prepare that meal, but I'm not quite ready to tip uh, when I'm picking up the stuff. Uh, okay. But yeah, so other industries, right? Go ahead. Okay, That's very interesting because the whole tip on takeout is an interesting one to me because I think during the pandemic, a lot of people were doing takeout meals, when the re- especially if restaurants were shut down. And I've heard the argument like, don't don't forget you should still tip even if you're pick- just picking up your food. But you're saying if you're doing a takeout, you're doing a pickup, you don't tip. It's a personal preference, and, and it really yeah. depends on where, where I'm doing it from. You know, I'll be honest. If it's a small business, independent owner, I will tip even on takeout. But if I'm going to a major chain where I know they've got dozens, if not hundreds, of locations across the country, I'm definitely not tipping on takeout. I know it doesn't sound fair. Uh, that's just the way I stand. I will never tip 30%. Uh, in fact, if I see 30% show up on the terminal, I'm inclined to tip even less because, like, come on, like, put on a fair realistic oh. number. Right. If, if I see 30 percent to me, it just feels like you're just trying to, like, get a cash grab here. Oh, OK. So do you think that there could be a, back, a consumer backlash on this? I certainly think so. Look at us We're having the conversation right now. It's been in the headlines for a long time. Uh, you know, when the media is talking about tip creep and everyone, your friends, like everyone sees it. Right. Yeah. It's a hot topic among my friends, colleagues, co-workers, whatever. Uh, the fact that it's become, you know, water cooler conversation, I, I think there is some backlash, outlash, whatever you want to call it. We're talking tipping to tip or not to tip. Barry Choi is my guest. Lots of calls. Maggie on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Maggie. What do you think? Hi. Um, well, um, well, I think it's gotten out of hand, obviously. Um, but, you know, I've kind of gone step back a little bit and kind of thought, you know, the waitress at Denny's works just as hard as a waitress at a fancy restaurant, but because of the food costs more expensive at a fancy restaurant, my thing goes so much higher. So I've kind of gone, I don't want to tip anymore on that button that also includes the tax. I want to look at my waitress and say, okay, she's hustled this hard and she deserves this much money. Not a percentage anymore, but to say, I just want to give you a bonus. Because I think when we go into the percentage, all of a sudden, these, these are huge different tips for people that are doing the same job. So yeah, I okay, that's a, back a little. Let's, th- let's look at, at giving the person a fair wage because, honestly, as the tips get higher, the wages, wait, the wait, waiting staff, whatever the term the term is, is, is not getting any better. It's just right. a, it, it's an expected thing. So I want to – I've been traveling, and, yes, there's no tipping, but I'll tell you, when they have a living wage, they hustle for their money. And I Thank- think we've got to change the entire industry. Thank you, Maggie, for the call. Barry, what do you think of that? <laughs> you know, Maggie's not wrong. It's true. You know, I was at the Keg Steakhouse recently. My family was out of, in, out of town, uh, in from town, out of town, sorry. Um, the, the meal was like $350, 20% tip. That's like another $70. Yeah. Uh, did that person necessarily work harder than someone I worked at a local restaurant? Uh, not necessarily. 
Um, that said, you know, the percentage on a meal is going to be the same no matter what. You know what I mean? It's like that's just yeah. kind of a standard. Unless you personally decide, I'm going to give this person $20 no matter what, which may look great in smaller restaurants, but you'll appear to be very cheap in fancier restaurants. Yeah, that's right. Let's go back to the phone lines. Rick in Richmond. Hey, Rick, what do you think? Well, I was in Church's Chicken last week, and uh, the girl that was serving me was so good. She was so attentive. She was hopping to it. When I was given the bill for my takeout, I said, add 10% to it because I was using credit card. And she says, sir, we can't. We we don't have the option on our credit, on on our cash register. We can't give you. And I didn't have cash with me. But the servers now, are are charged income tax on anything you put on your credit card as a tip and it goes to the management and then it's distributed again so in the last few weeks i've been carrying uh five ten and twenty dollar bills in because i don't use cash and and i'm i'm putting five percent on the bill and and giving them a, a folded bill so that they can just stick it in their pocket if they've done a good job but uh, hmm. my mechanics, I do not, I, I refuse to tip for, for a service like a mechanic or have something you been, like that. Have you been asked for a tip at, like when you're getting like an oil change? No, but what okay. I, I've, I've got the same mechanics for the last six or seven years out in Langley. And I always stop and get a dozen donuts in in the morning and drop them off, and I oh. and then and my car goes in, and they treat me like gold because they have their sure. lunch break and they get a sweet. But you know, I, I don't leave them any money because I wouldn't do that. And if okay. you don't tip a mechanic, the next time they might leave the the plug in your oil pan loose or something. <laughs> okay, Rick. Thank <laughs> thank you for the call. I think you I think you're a good hearted guy for sure. Uh, Corey in Vancouver. Hi, Corey. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. During the pandemic, I tipped everywhere, and I was happy to do that to support local businesses. But now I'm finding, like, uh, like you said the other day, I was at got an oil change, and there was a, a tipping option. I was good luck. I I just bypassed it. But I'm a little frustrated. Like they now they do it 18, 20, 25, 30. I'm just like yeah. screw that because first of all, it's on tax, so you're paying the tip on the tax. So I just go with the other feature. There's always another button, and then you punch in your own amount. And I'm usually right. doing about 15. percent uh, you know, it's just because, you know, they're nickel and diamond everywhere. And the funny thing is, is the other day I was talking to somebody who has a degree. And I said, so what are you doing with your degree? Where are you working? She goes, well, I'm staying in the service industry because I'm making way more money with my tips. So, <laughs> wow. Okay. So, there you go, right? So, yeah, that tells the story right there, right? So, Th- thank you, Corey. Hey, Barry, what is the deal on tipping on tax? What is the rule there? It depends where you stand. You know, as a consumer, I think it's uh, before tax. Uh, but if you work in the service industry, I don't think anyone will complain if you're tipping after tax, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sharon and Burnaby. Hi, Sharon. Go ahead. Well, uh, I was going to talk about the fact that I went to a liquor store the other day and they wanted a ta- uh, tip oh. on their liquor store. And the guys, I said to the guy, I'm a cashier in a grocery store. I don't get tips. What makes you so special that you're de- you deserve a tip? And he didn't Ooh. have an answer, but I did bypass that feature. But with regards to the lady saying pay them more money and get rid of tipping, didn't some restaurants on Vancouver Island try that ploy? And actually, the staff were not happy because they got a higher wage, but they made more money with the tips. So, yeah, yeah it didn't work. If that, if the whole thing fell through. So... 
I think that, yeah, you take your chances when you're a waitress or a waiter with regards to the tipping. Sometimes my son used to work at tipping, and he said you'd work a 12-person table and you got 20 bucks, or you worked a five-person table and they gave you 50 bucks because they liked your service. So it is a hit and miss. But I, he still came home every night with three or four hundred dollars in tips because he worked at a high end restaurant. So you that's know. pretty. Thank you, Sharon, for the call. Yeah. Let's squeeze another one in here. Andy and Langley. Hi, Andy. Go ahead. How are you doing today, guys? Hey, Good. Um, it, it looks like my my point was just covered, and I will say, like um, everyone's probably noticed this that um, cold beer and wine store. You have someone behind a kiosk. You wander up, get yourself a half dozen beverages, come up with a little box, put it down. They scan it and expect a tip. Um, you're doing <laughs> you're doing their job. Um, that that's something I've never done. I have no issues tipping people for service. Uh, good example. Recently, I had the gutters cleaned in my house. Uh, the guy went above and beyond what I was paying him for. And I look at the job that he did and the time that it took him to do it. And I thought, you know what? Here's an extra few dollars cash bills in your pocket, the person that actually did it. So tipping is a good thing um, for service. Okay. Uh, Th- thank you for that, Barry. We have one minute left here. What do you think? Tip on the service? Is that your rule of thumb? You know, I think everyone realizing tipping on the service is, is never a bad thing. No one's arguing that, you know, tipping is worthwhile. I think the complaint right now is just the fact that the amount that's being asked and where you're being asked is, is frustrating because certainly we all understand that service workers have been struggling, especially the last couple of years, but inflation is also affecting everyone. So if you're someone who's just struggling with their day-to-day bills, then you're being asked to tip for a service that you may not necessarily think is worth it. Uh, wow. There's going to be a lot of the heat, right? That's for sure. Barry, thank you for coming on today. A hot topic for sure. Appreciate it. No problem.